0: Hello, and welcome back to Getting to the Top, where we interview transformational leaders about their leadership journey. And today, I have the honor of interviewing Ms. Karen Sack. Karen is the Executive Director of Ocean Risk and Resilience Action Alliance. She is the co-founder and Executive Director of Aura, a unique multi-sector collaboration between the private sector, governments, and civil society designed to build resilience in the regions and communities most vulnerable to ocean risk by pioneering finance and insurance products that incentivize incentivize investment into nature-based solutions she has spent her career working on ocean conservation advocacy and policy and has spoken and written extensively on ocean conservation climate and sustainable finance so much so that she is a she is the absolute go-to person on ocean she has previously served as the CEO of Ocean Unite, which is where I met her. And Ocean Unite was a nonprofit co founded by none other than uh, Karen Sir Richard Branson and former Costa Rican President Jose Marie Figueras. And it was founded to engage impactful voices at key moments that matter to catalyze ocean conservation around 30 by 30, which is the protection of 30% of the land and ocean by 2030, which we're still all working towards. She was the senior director for International Oceans at the Pew Charitable Trust. She was also the head of Greenpeace's International Political and Business Unit. She spearheaded global campaigns to secure new high seas treaties, biodiversity, uh, large marine reserves, sanctuaries to reform the EU's common fisheries policy, and illegal fishing, and so much more. She is the ocean advocate we had all been waiting for. And I I don't know, I honestly don't know what we would have done without her in the ocean space. Welcome, Karen. Thank you, Raquel. You are very kind,
1: but I'm just one little drop in a very (laughs) large ocean of activism around uh, ocean conservation. So it's lovely to be with you. And um,
0: thank you for uh, the very kind words. Wonderful. So how did all of this, this passion for ocean and environment start? Like when you were eight, what did you think you were going to do?
1: So I am South African by birth. I, when I was eight, I was going to be the first woman to be a wild animal vet in South Africa. That's veterinarian. That's all I wanted to do. I was a land person. I love going into nature and in particular, going into the bush and experiencing wildlife. Um, My only challenge as I grew older, and I was still on this pathway, if that's what I wanted to do, um, when I was at high school, I was nearing the end of high school, and uh, I needed to get into veterinary school in South Africa. I needed to, to ace all my exams, particularly in physics and chemistry. And that was just not gonna happen. And so I had to kind of blow up my dream career um, and I had no idea what I was gonna do. And uh, I went for some career counseling and the person said to me, whatever you do, you've always loved the environment. Uh, Always make sure that there's something to do with nature in what you do, but best of luck. And so so that's where I was, Uh, yeah didn't didn't have anywhere to go at that point other than to figure it out.
0: That is insane that the first wildlife vet at eight that was just you know like I find it's so oddly specific, but I can see how an eight-year-old Karen would have been like. Yeah, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be first a woman. At bed. They, first they woman.
1: Wild, 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 animal
0: veterinarians. But there was there were no women that I knew of. Ah, and that's, what I to do. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. And so physics and chemistry—that was where it fell apart. It all fell apart, sadly. So, so, so what? So what? Then you're like, best of luck. You got best of luck. So then, what did you decide to do? So I
1: decided I would just go and do a a general undergraduate degree. I had no idea uh, what it should be in. Um, It was the the mid-1980s in South Africa, which was a very, very turbulent uh, period. Um, There were states of emergency. There were uh, all kinds of oppression uh, going on in the country. And uh, my older sister was at university and some of the universities were the places where new ideas were emerging and the recognition of the kind of system of apartheid that we were living in, particularly for whites, you know, for us, it was... um, we, we grew up in a place where we never saw um, Black South African children, really. The only exposure we had to Black South Africans were as domestic workers or gardeners. Um, that's what our life was. And so the the blinders were, were pulled away from my eyes by my exposure to some of those issues. And as I went to university, I became very involved um, with anti-apartheid activities and really, I think my university—I I did four years of an undergrad, uh, an undergraduate degree—and I think I did more outside of the classroom. I don't know how I actually got my degree, um, but I learned how to be a campaigner, um, mm-hmm. and I learned how to argue and think and critically analyze and work out how important it was to sit down and talk with people who you've never met before or you've never thought about um, and issues you've never thought about. And I landed up getting a degree in industrial sociology and English literature, which as you can imagine is highly valuable and <laughs> you to do anything. Um, but while I was there, I, I also got a part-time job as a nonprofit um which was working on putting together solutions across different disciplines so they had architects and economists and sociologists uh and uh you know i don't know probably there was a psychologist on the team as well looking and urban planners and looking at solving um urban planning and living issues for different communities. And it just struck me how important it was for different disciplines, people trained in different ways to to get together if we're going to solve problems. And that always stuck with me as something at the heart of what I do. And I'm going to do a major shout out to Andrew Borain, who was like an amazing mentor for me at that point in time and went on in south africa to do some incredible work on building bridges between communities so um he he planted a seed which hopefully has grown
0: oh that's phenomenal that's phenomenal but you know i industrial sociology and english literature i just i just didn't yeah i had i have no idea
1: I, I know, but you know at the time uh, the the what was going on with the unions in South Africa mm-hmm. and worker rights was a was a major issue. Um, and that's what I wanted to work on. I wanted to work with the unions and focus on worker issues and and rights. And uh, actually funnily enough, that led to um, I left South Africa in the in the early 90s uh, to to do some graduate studying in the US. And uh, I wanted to go into human resource management because I thought I needed to learn that in order to go back and help empower the workers in South Africa that had been really some of the most underprivileged and oppressed. Um, But no one would accept me for a degree Yeah, They they wouldn't accept the degree that I'd got in South Africa. Um, So I had to go to a different university and uh, while I was waiting to see if they would accept my degree, I saw that they had some work on international politics and development. And I thought, well, that, that could be quite interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a time, Raquel, when, you know, you still went in and spoke to people rather than doing everything online. Right. And uh, mm-hmm. and there was a booklet, which I looked through. And when they said, yes, we'll accept your degree, um you know, you can start in, in a month's time, if you're interested, what are you interested in studying? And I had opened the page to this degree in international politics. I said, well, that looks really interesting. And, and that was the probably the best decision in the quickest amount of time that I didn't think about at all that I ever made. And so I did a master's in international political economy and development.
0: So it was you know, I love this idea of bridging the gaps and sort of looking out on the landscape, seeing the challenges, and deciding this is something that I wanna, I wanna help fix. I wanna get involved in. This is a problem that needs to be solved. And you seemed very sort of solution oriented, and and but still open to, you know, allowing the universe to find you. You open the booklet and you're like, yeah, international politics and and development. I'll do that. But I guess it felt, it feels to me and and get me if I'm wrong, that you sort of, you felt drawn to solving a problem and you almost were open to whatever path would get you there. You know? Yeah. Yeah. How did you develop that, that sort of, that, that approach, that mindset that said, you know what, I know what the problem is and that's the thing that I want to help to solve, but I'm not willing to be really overly structured about my path to get there? Um, I,
1: I think it was just a a, a, a series of experiences, really. Mm-hmm. For me, you know, at the heart of anything I've worked on, there's always been the issue of equity and how to deliver greater equity, whether it's for people, for the planet, um, for the way that people work together, um, relationships, the way people listen to one another, And that kind of sense of needing to work across sectors, it doesn't matter what the issue is. The solutions require us to to learn and listen from one another and and understand different ways of thinking. And so I think that that was always um, kind of at the core and still remains at the core of what I do. I don't know how it got there, Mm -hmm. but that's where it is.
0: But I think it's such great advice for for younger women coming up in their careers because sometimes they they at least I hear that you know there's only one way and and you know they they feel oh well this door is shut oh, I'm devastated because there's no other way to get to to the path that I'm on and I'm like no, there are like a thousand doors but if you are clear on what is your objective what is the thing that you feel like you have to be a part of you know this this sense of solving equity and being willing to do that in a number of different scenarios which each time makes you even stronger for the next one that you approach because you're learning new things about how things fit together
1: yeah and i think that's you know um i think it's a really important point to make because the the whole idea of a career path Mm -hmm. is it's not a straight line you know Mm -hmm. and i think in some ways you know, I, I'm a mother of two amazing um, young men. I learned more from kind of in terms of problem solving and dispute resolution. <laughs> when I was, you know, a, a full-time mom for a while, then I probably did working in in various jobs. And I think this is where we have to put all those learnings together, Um, that that's part of what makes us. And we shouldn't think that taking time out or stepping back from what we're doing is is something that's going to take away from that career path, because it actually is something that feeds into what we learn and understand and feeds our compassion and our empathy um which which makes us stronger problem solvers as we move forward,
0: ah, oh, that is such a great point. And you know, what I want to drive home and underscore here is, and you know you at a point in your career, you were a full- time mom and still the best brands in the business, Greenpeace, Pew travel Charitable Trust, Sir Richard Branson, you know, all of these. And you were still able to continue an illustrious career. And some people think, oh, well, if I decide to have a baby or take some time off, well, game over. That that's not it at all. It
1: it isn't. And and I think, um, you know, in some ways I've been very fortunate, but in other ways, you know, we make our own parts. Mm. And um, there were times when I worked part-time. There were times when I had my kids that I studied. I did, you know, because otherwise my brain was going to go nuts, and it wasn't going to be healthy for them or for me. Um, and I think that's all important. It's yeah. it's creating that person. Now, you know, they may give you a completely different vision of who I am, but um, but I, I do think it is important for us to recognize that there is no, you know, straight line and. As long as we are learning along the way, and it may mean that for several years, you know, you, you maybe don't have the most, you know, the, the biggest title or the biggest salary, but yeah. you are building the the blocks on which you can, you know, as you you can step up uh, onto them um, to take to go to the next level. And I think that's that's really important. And you know we we all we need to take the time to do that because I think also we've realized over time, particularly as women you know we 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 can't be super women for everything we yeah. we have to look after ourselves and we have to look after our communities and our families, and that's actually all part of who we are and if people don't accept us for that,
0: uh <laughs> just move on from them. <laughs> But how did you have the confidence to, to understand that, you know, this may be where I am now, but I'm still moving generally forward because I think that's the thing that concerns many people in their careers Mm -hmm. that, you know, am I stuck? Am I regressing? Am I, you know, am I not moving at the pace that I should be moving at? How do you allay those fears about being concerned about your career and how it will eventually unfold? So I think
1: those concerns are all gonna, always going to be there. I mean, you know, we're always thinking about that. I, it would be, I would not be telling the truth if I if I didn't say that. But I think what's really important is to is to find kind of comrades along your pathway um, who become, you know, your friends, your community, your mentors who have been through similar things. Some of them have, some of them have, you know, charted new paths, some of them have um, done something completely different, but it's a reference group and um, they'll help you. You know, I think oftentimes we think we're alone in all of this, um, mm-hmm. but we're not. And so having, again, building those communities, you know, sharing the the kind of trials and tribulations along the way, um, makes you understand, there was a a period, you know, when my kids were young, where uh, a group of us established what we call a bad mother's club. And (laughs) it was, it was a, it was half a joke. Um, You know, we were the ones who sometimes got to pick up our kids late, or Mm. weren't the ones, you know, making all the decorations for some class event. Or whatever it was that we couldn't do. Um, And there was community in that. And we could then talk to our children about the fact that, you know, what we were doing, how we were trying through our work to help them in the longer run, and that there were others who were like us and it was okay. And Mm -hmm. I think that's important.
0: Yeah, giving yourself grace to just, you know, deal with your circumstances as they come. So you guys should get royalties from the movie. They are bad moms. <laughs> Maybe we should. We should. <laughs> so you you mentioned Andrew Boring, is it? Yeah. Who was a mentor? Tell me about. How did he mentor you? Well, I think you know he
1: was someone who had very big ideas and was open to be challenged along the way. And you know, along the path that I've gone, there've been many others since then, um, and. All of them, I think, have been, I think, both been willing to listen, but also to push back. And um, I had another amazing mentor when I actually started working on oceans. Um, again, I was back in South Africa, and I was doing some work then, and it was the the late, um, mid to late 1990s. Um, I'd by then, worked a little bit at Greenpeace, figured out what was going on in the ocean space and been absolutely shocked by what was going on um, after I did a study on, uh, on, on the, the 10 biggest fishing companies in the world um, and realized the impunity with which they could operate. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was doing a, a master's in international law Uh, at a time in South Africa, where all the laws were being rewritten. And there was another amazing mentor, Denzel Miller, who uh, was working on combating illegal fishing and protecting the Antarctic. And he one day said to me, you know, we've worked on this, this, uh, you know, something together, I am on the same page as you are, you need to stand up and represent us on these issues don't worry if you make a mistake. I've got enough political capital to get your back. Right. Nice. And and I think, again, just something that has been so important to me through so many years is both at that time, knowing that if you've done the homework, if you're on the same page as the, the leader that you're working with, um, that they can empower you to to step up and step forward, but they've got your back. Mm. And then being able to do that with time in various other jobs, hopefully to empower the folks that now and have in the past worked with me to do the same. Um, and that means being, you know, constructively critical because sometimes mm. we don't always like to listen and change our opinions, um, but it's really important that the people who are standing behind us can help us before we make the really bad mistakes yeah. um and support us through you know the the moments that we need that support
0: no that's so important i mean i think you know knowing that you you're working for someone who has your back that's really important because that just opens up a world of possibilities for you to have the the space to make a mistake and to learn and to grow into new areas um i love the idea of of you being empowered and then in turn empowering others, because you see that as sort of the natural way of, of how we progress. And I think that that is something that we're losing this ability to constructively criticize. So it's either that, oh, if you criticize someone, you're crushing their spirit or you're, you're a troll. And then you're, you're, um you're, you're ruinously empath, (laughs) empathizing with them and not supporting them. And that's, i think that's that's so many things that that's wrong it's it's lazy it's it's not helpful you're not helping people to grow and being willing to sort of be wrong in that space right you push yeah. back but they can push back and you're having a an open dialogue about yeah. this is what i think and this is this is where we agree and disagree
1: yeah it's it's essential and i think it's um if we lose that we lose the ability to sit down with folks we may not agree with and work out a way forward
0: yeah but that's kind of most of all at the moment right yeah but that like started out as your superpower is being able to bridge these gaps in the in the beginning and just noticing these things that weren't quite right and saying well listen i'm going to learn from a lot of different industries and see if i can build bridges to try and solve problems well nice. i don't know if it's
1: a superpower but it's uh <laughs> it's uh it's certainly you know uh i like to think that it's a a good a good thesis to live by
0: definitely definitely speaking of a good thesis what's the best advice you've ever gotten Oh,
1: um that is a very good question. I've never mm. thought about that. Um, really, the best advice—I mm-hmm. uh, think it's actually very simple. It's—it's it's, there's nothing. Uh, you've probably heard this many times before. It's—it's it's kind of go with your gut, mm. um, which is, you know, it sounds so simple, and yet there are so many different times when you second guess yourself, you Mm -hmm. second guess that first instinct. uh, And the result is, whatever you're doing, uh, kind of devolves into, uh, into something messier, and, and and probably undoable. And I think that that's, I I think it's, it's, it's kind of go with your gut, but also recognize when you've got to step back and step away from things. Um, Sometimes, You know, we are so sold on the idea of something that it becomes very difficult to step back and think uh, with a little bit of distance about it. Um, I've never been somebody who's been single issue focused. Mm. And that issue, you know, the the parallel, actually, um, somebody once once drew for me was they talked about an entrepreneur or a business person who has one idea, mm-hmm. and they're really successful at that idea, but that's the only idea that they can focus on, and they can't think about anything different from that, versus a serial entrepreneur who has many ideas, some of which just don't work, yeah. others of which do. Um, and being able to switch between those different things, but keep a pathway moving forward in the same direction. And Mm -hmm. so I I like to think that um, that while I've, I've, there's certain things that have been constant, there are are a series of steps forward um, that have enabled me to evolve and, and work on different issues. Um, And I think sometimes when we get stuck on a single issue, and it's really important that some people are incredibly focused on those single issues. We need those experts. We need their knowledge. Um, It's really, really important. But I think it's really important also to be able to step back from that and look at the bigger picture and situate what you're doing within that bigger
0: picture. I think when you when you that that was such a great analogy with the with the entrepreneur with one idea versus the the serial entrepreneur because that's how you're sort of managing risk. You're diluting your risk by always challenging yourself to come up with new ideas. You'll have a lot more failures that way, but you'll learn a lot more and continue to get better with each iteration versus the one idea that you sort of work on night and day then that has the ability to to blow up and and when that doesn't work anymore you haven't developed the ability to iterate yeah and
1: it i think that's a, it's a really good word um because i think that's you know in the, a world that is constantly changing and as we look at anything that we're doing particularly in the environmental space and particularly you know here we're sitting having this conversation in october of 2023. It's the hottest year on record. What's going on in the ocean or on land is absolutely soul destroying as we look at it. Mm -hmm. Um, If we were still using the same tactics and strategies we had developed 20 years ago, they wouldn't be being effective. Um, We've got to be able to iterate through some of these issues so that we can both survive the reality of what's going on Um, Have the hope that we need to drive action forward, but also adapt to the changing circumstances, whether it's social media or AI or conflict, uh, extreme storm events, whatever it happens to be, we have to be able to iterate forward through those circumstances and, uh, and adapt and be resilient to the changes that are taking place. It's kind of like climate change, you know, mitigation, adaptation, and resilience.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. It's like it applies to everything, your career, as well as what's happening to the planet. And I think that, you know, when you talked about going with your gut and that it's so simple, but sometimes so difficult, that's so true, huh? Because, you know, for me, if I look back on all of the deeply uh, educational experiences that I've had when I've gone against my gut. And had to learn the hard way. It was, you know, I knew better. I knew that was't and still looking back now, maybe it was I needed to learn that lesson the hard way. Yep. but if you just listen to that voice and just get quiet enough to listen to that voice. And as you said, step back and and just say, wait a minute. am i am I evaluating this situation clearly? Am I giving myself the space to even hear my own voice mm-hmm. in this space to decide what to do? and then once you make a decision be willing to sort of live with that decision and trust in the process that you know that will then unfold absolutely
1: and there'll be mistakes yeah you know but you learn from those and you won't make them again <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah hopefully um, <laughs> exactly i know um uh, my daughter was was uh, doing something that I didn't necessarily agree with. And I said, you know, I said, but, you know, I don't think you've made enough mistakes in your life, you know, so go for it because <laughs> I think she's due to have several different adventures. So I'm really excited about seeing her uh, potentially make mistakes and recover and try again and learn knowing that just as you said, if you build your, you build your community, you build your tribe, you build your people who will be there for you no matter what, whether it's the bad mom's club or you know that you have your family to, to fall back on if it mm-hmm. all goes to hell, yep. then then you have the space to take that chance. And so surround yourself with people who can support you in taking the chances, whether it's a boss who says, listen, I've got your back, or it's a set of moms who are dealing with some similar struggles and are like, listen, we're not buying into that. That whole making the perfect decorations—that's just not. That's not top of my list. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And I think it's being being willing to to simplify. The what and the how, without overcomplicating it. There's not a straight line, and that's okay. You're not necessarily going to know whether this step is lateral or forward, but you know what you're in your core is your goal, and you're going to go with that you're going to find great mentors along the way and take from them what you can but you're also going to listen to that inner voice and make yeah. sure that you are true to that to that inner calling
1: and i i think part of that is is making sure that you are finding the time to listen to that voice mm. and so i go back to you know that that piece of advice when i was 16 years old which said whatever you do you love nature. So have have a connection to the environment. And so oftentimes when I need to listen to that voice, I have to take myself into nature. And, you know, whether it's a park down the street in a big city or, you know, being able to hike up a mountain or go and sit on a beach and just empty your mind, those moments are, are really important. For me, that's really essential in terms of just clearing the space um, and being able
0: to hear that voice again. Yeah. And there's, there's evidence that that's, that's true for all of us. Like we need that connection with nature at various times to feed our soul, to feed our spirit, to, to keep us healthy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 But you are in a really super unique space now with aura and doing incredibly innovative things so i wanted to to sort of um touch on that before we closed because i i think that that this willingness to take innovative approaches for the things that we do and in our careers and in solving the climate crisis i think it's so really important so tell us a little bit about the work that you're doing now sure so
1: you know i think again if i look back at these threads this, as I mentioned, this issue of equity, um thinking about the economic drivers of issues has always been really important to me. And I've, you know, the, o- the ocean is kind of considered the environmental orphan of of the environmental community. Everyone's forests are sexy, the climate is really important, the ocean. Everybody loves oh, a mangrove. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now mangroves are a bit more sexy, but um. Yes the, you know, it is this earth system that's really, really important. And there's so little attention that's paid to it. Um, And yet, if you think about uh, the people and the livelihoods that are dependent on it, um, the fact that it regulates our weather and the earth's temperature and all these things, you begin to think in different ways about it. And so, you know, I've worked on policy issues at the UN and in various countries. I've worked on protecting specific species um, and then looking at major protected areas and how we can protect nature. And the question that always comes up in every single one of these issues is where's the money? You know, Mm. who's driving the activity? If it's an economic activity, or if it's protection, how do we find the money to protect these areas? And so mm-hmm. we, um, I had an- another amazing uh, colleague uh, who I've had the fortune of working with for the last seven years, is, is a guy by the name of uh, Chip Cunliffe. And we met, uh, we can't really remember where we met. We do, we remember the first meeting we had, but we can't remember who introduced us. Um, he was working for an insurer. Um, I was working at Ocean Unite at the time, and the issue of ocean risk was was kind of coming to the forefront. So changing ocean, there had just been the hurricanes, uh, a, a year of three hurricanes in a row in the Caribbean. The insurance sector was recognizing this was an issue the National Security Establishment was recognizing this was an issue, um, what a changing and heating ocean would mean for communities, migration, food security, livelihoods, national security. And so we put together a meeting in Bermuda in 2018 and we brought together kind of finance and insurance, uh, civil society, governments and academics to talk about this issue of ocean risk. Um, There were about 200 people there, and what was amazing that we realized was that everyone was speaking different languages, Mm -hmm. and that it was really difficult to translate across these these different universes almost. And so afterwards, uh, we got together with a couple of the organizations that we'd worked with to set up Aura, which is truly what it says in the five words. It's about the ocean. Um, and and focusing on the ocean as an earth system, we look at risk issues. So what are the major risks, uh, the vulnerabilities um, that are impacting communities, particularly in coastal areas? And how do we build resilience to those risks? And one of the ways to build that resilience is to strengthen the financial security and sustainability for those communities and to do that through nature, and thinking about how nature can be an ally um, in building that resilience. And we need to take action to do that, right? But we can't work alone. We need to work through an alliance in order to help translate, accelerate, and drive change. So we set up Aura, it now has over 80 members. Our lead banking partner is Deutsche Bank. Our lead insurance partner is AXA. And we work to join the dots to help develop and deploy uh, finance and insurance products in the global south that will build the resilience of uh, communities living in coastal areas. Building an investable project pipeline from the ground up Um, for those opportunities, but also looking on a systemic level at what the global ocean financing ecosystem is. How do we build a capital market for the ocean so that it becomes part and parcel of financing and recognizing the value of nature, the value of blue nature becomes intrinsic in our accounting and economic systems so that we think about all of that to maintain and build uh, the resilience and adaptive capacity of the communities uh, living in coastal areas, but also of the ecosystems on which we all depend.
0: Brilliant. Karen, thank you so much. I know that your story would be inspiring to many. And especially the advice around going with your gut and being open and willing to follow the path where it leads, but also to to be that bridge and to bridge that gap and to apply innovation to solving problems. and to so looking at not being so stuck in in sort of one mode of thinking, being willing to sort of explore and to 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 get stronger by the alliances that you build, you know through your career.
1: Well, thank you, Raquel. And I know you and I have the pleasure of crossing paths at so many intersections, and it is always so much fun. And I think that's the the final thing to say is it has to be fun. Yeah. Um, and 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 there is a lot of uh, passion and exhaustion and frustration in everything that we do, but we have an incredible community. Uh, and a, particularly a community of women now yes. who is building forward and driving change. And so, my final shout out, honestly, is to my you know absolute best person on the planet, Bunny McDermott, who was the the, the head of uh, Greenpeace International and Greenpeace New Zealand, and an amazing woman leader. Um, who anyone who who wants to find out more about true uh, leadership and servant leadership. Um, mm. Just an amazing woman who taught me most of what I know. And so I think, you know, learning from from our, our mentors, our colleagues and our friends um, to drive change is where the fun is. So um, we have to keep going. And I look forward to, as I said, uh, working with you and, and having more fun as we drive change around the world.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. If you're not having fun, you're doing something wrong. We we get one, we get one chance at this. So whatever you're doing, you need to enjoy it. And I'd love to meet Bunny McDermott. So <laughs> absolutely. We'll we'll make that I, happen. <laughs> yes. And I think our audience would love to meet her too. Thank you so much for staying with us through this episode of Getting to the Top. I really appreciate you. And if you haven't already, please subscribe. You know that you need to do it if you haven't. And if not. We'll see you next time. Nonetheless, I look forward to hearing your comments and your recommendations for other other uh, guests, including Bunny McDermott. I'm, I'm like I'm already sold. I want to speak to her. But thank you so much for being with us through this episode, and we look forward to seeing you on the next one. Bye. Bye bye.